the lips of children, and we are, the Bible reminds us, in Christ, the children of God. I'm reading three verses from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. John is speaking of Jesus, and he says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, but the world did not know him. He came unto his own people, and even they received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Our celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ is in a winding down phase. It's obvious, looking around, that many are still enjoying vacations connected to the season. Some might yet have family gatherings and gift exchanges on their calendars. In our church and in many of our homes, our decorations are still up. But for most of us, apart from writing thank you notes and taking things back to the store and paying the bills, Christmas is over. But before we leave the season entirely, there are some things that would be good for us to think about. You and I recognize to our sadness that for more and more people in our culture, Christmas is a holiday that has virtually nothing to do with Jesus Christ, even though his title is at the heart of the title of the day. It's a time to renew family traditions, to enjoy the giving and receiving of gifts that symbolize the values of friendships. It's an excuse for a party, It represents relief from our labor. It is the semi-official welcome of winter. But if it were discovered that all of the things that we have ever heard about Jesus Christ were nothing more than legend and myth, the celebration of the holiday for many would hardly be effective. But that isn't true for us. While we cherish the traditions of our families, and enjoy the exchange of gifts, and love the parties and the relaxations and the first signs of winter as much as our non-believing neighbors, Christmas is for us primarily about Jesus Christ. He is our life and our peace, our hope and our joy. He is our salvation. And without him, life in general and Christmas in particular are denuded of value and meaning. But before the season and the day completely fade from our consciousness, there's a question that I would like to consider the answer to with you. Christmas celebrates the birth of our Lord, the beginning of his life. A third of a century later, that life would end on a Roman cross, on a skull-shaped hill, with Jesus surrounded by a crowd of jeering Jews and indifferent Gentiles. For Christmas to have meaning for us, Jesus' life must have meaning for us. And with that in mind, my question to you is this, was Jesus' life a success? Now, it might surprise you to hear me ask that question, and I assure you that I'm not entertaining doubts myself, and I suspect that you aren't either, but I ask that question to focus our attention on another and a related question, and that is in order for us to answer the question, was Jesus' life a success, we have to know how to measure success. I'm not asking a question about Jesus' personal life as a man. 
That life was flawless. From the greatest to the least of them, Jesus kept every one of God's commandments and he met every one of his father's expectations. That claim can never be made about me. That claim cannot be made about you. You and I continually fail to break the least of those commandments and to fall short of the least of those expectations. And this is why Jesus taught us to pray without ceasing until he returns for us and glory opens before us. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. This is not simply the weekly prayer of those who know themselves best. It is our daily prayer. But Jesus had no need for such a prayer because he committed no sin. In this sense, in the sense of his personal holiness, his life was indeed a perfect success. When I ask, was Jesus' life successful, my question has more to do with his role as a religious leader. That Jesus was a religious leader is plain. In fact, in the gospel, he is never presented in any other way. He was not, as some in the wider church would like to think, a social revolutionary. He was not a political or economic innovator. He came not to address the corporate ills of cultures. He came to a place where there was no church, as we know the church. He gave his life as an atonement for human sins. His aim was to glean disciples and train them in principles of godliness. His intent was to gather those disciples and into self-sustaining bodies called churches. In the language of today, Jesus was a church planter. And in that regard, was Jesus successful? And again, the question gives rise to the larger question, how do we measure success? For as long as I can remember, the most common indicator of success in the whole church is numbers. To liberals, the significant numbers are dollars. In our old denomination, in annual statistic reports, it was around 1960 that Sunday school enrollment stopped rising and began to fall. But there was no particular concern about that. In 1965, the denomination began to report annual losses of membership, a trend that continues to this day. In fact, their annual membership losses are somewhere in the neighborhood of 40,000. But again, no one in an official position expressed great concern about this. But sometime in the 1970s, dollar numbers started to drop. And suddenly the denomination became concerned about something it called evangelism. In this time in which we gather for worship, there are dozens of congregations desiring to leave that denomination, looking desperately for a way out. Many of them, in fact, are looking at our denomination. And the denomination protests their efforts to separate. It speaks in glorious, lofty terms of the unity of the church and connectionalism, but almost as it aside says, if you give us money, we'll let you go and we won't complain. In fact, I just learned of a very small congregation in Ohio. It has but 13 members, and its presbytery told it, if you give us $10,000, we will let you go and keep your property. 
The success of the church, the sum, is measured in dollars. Among evangelicals, numbers are also used to measure the vitality or the health of the church, but generally speaking, not numbers of dollars, but numbers of people. Sunday school enrollment, membership, worship attendance, converts, all of these things become numerical measurements in the evangelical church of how well a church is doing. In part, I suppose we use numbers to measure the health of a church because numbers are relatively easy to collect and to assess. It's easy to take a piece of graph paper and put dots on the graph paper and then draw a line connecting those dots and see whether that, the lines trend upward or downward and make decisions about success on the basis of those lines. But among evangelical churches, there's another reason. That is the great emphasis that is placed in the wider church and in our own regarding evangelism. In fact, some denominations, including our own, say that the main business of the church is reaching the lost for Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important than that. If doctrines have to be jettisoned, if worship has to be compromised, if schedules have to be readjusted in order to make the church palatable to non-believers, then we must do that is the message because reaching the lost is the primary reason that God has created the church. And it's widely assumed that if the church is doing its job and doing it well, then the numbers will reflect growth and be a sign of success and health. You have heard me say before, if you participate regularly in the life of this church, that this almost rabid preoccupation with evangelism in much of the evangelical church MIPS represents what the Bible requires of the church. In fact, there's a compelling reason to believe that the Great Commission was fulfilled in the first century. And in New Testament epistles that were written to congregations and individuals, there is virtually nothing said about evangelism as the word is used in the church today. Now, if that statement arouses your curiosity or perhaps even your animosity, please know that I would love an opportunity to talk with you about it. To go further right now takes me far beyond the scope of the intended direction of this message. But I'd like to talk with you about the success of Jesus as a religious leader. But I do need to say this about that, that the modern emphasis on evangelism and the use of numbers to determine the success of a church or a movement is based on a naive, unbiblical view of unredeemed human nature. That view of man in his native state is one that you have heard over and over and over in venues other than this. And it says something like this, that those who are lost know that they are lost, that they grieve their alienation from God and yearn for someone to come to them and in love show them the way to salvation and to everlasting life. It's a view that is expressed in much of the music of the church. In fact, you and I just heard probably more than once the words, long lay the world in sin and error pining. The idea is that if Christians will live lives that are consistent with the faith we profess, and if Christians will find wise and gentle ways to express the love and offer the mercy of the gospel to the lost, that they'll be standing in long lines at the doors of our churches. 
No serious student of Scripture can take such a view. For he recalls reading in the second Psalm, for example, of the deliberate total rebellion of unredeemed human nature against God and against his Son. He remembers reading in Psalm 14 that the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see whether there are any who understand and seek God. And the conclusion of God is this, they have all turned aside, they have together become corrupt, there is none who does good, no, not one. And the assessment of the one we call Lord in the third chapter of John is this, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. However we decide them, individually or corporately as a church, let's be sure that our understanding of every issue that is vital to our faith and vital to the life and the ministry of the church is decided on the grounds of Scripture and nothing less and nothing other. But having said all this, if the common view of the longing of the unsaved heart and the desperate need to reach out to the lost are true, then what might we expect to find in the records of Jesus' life? We would expect to find stories of men and women who recognized him as the Son of God, as the promised Savior, and who eagerly embraced him by faith. And indeed, there are such stories. In fact, the names of the subjects of those stories are etched deep into the memory of every person who loves the Bible and is his student. We remember the names of Jesus' disciples, at least 11 of them. But in addition to that, we recall reading about Mary and Joseph, about Simeon and Anna and John the Baptist, about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, Zacchaeus and the woman at the well, and Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. We remember these people and their stories, and we smile when we think of them because some of their stories remind us of the story that we tell about our meeting and our trusting Jesus Christ. But we think about that list of names, and then we remember that there were times when crowds numbering well into the thousands came to places where Jesus was. But here we list the names of those who embraced him by faith and the list has barely two dozen names on it. Surely there are more. But if their number is doubled or tripled, it's still a tiny fraction of all of those men and women and young people who were exposed to Jesus Christ. Speaking of those people who were drawn to Jesus in the sixth chapter of John, we find this historian's record of that occasion on which Jesus fed a crowd numbering 5,000 men, plus women and children who happened to be there. He tells us that the day after Jesus fed this crowd, the people came back to the same place looking for Jesus. Not because they longed for his touch. Not because they knew their need for his mercy, not because they longed to hear more of his word, but because they were hungry. In Matthew 13, we find a number of Jesus' parables about the kingdom of heaven regarding its essence and its beauty. And also in that chapter, we find an insightful record of an exchange because between Jesus and his disciples. 
his disciples were curious as to why Jesus taught the crowds in parables. In other words, why don't you teach them plainly? Why do you disguise the beauty and the depth and the wonder of these truths with these almost childlike stories? Jesus answered their question in this way. He said, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. How odd and how difficult it is to explain this if the contemporary view of fallen human nature is the right view. In the eighth chapter of John, we find Jesus in or very near the temple interacting with a large crowd of people. And to them, he speaks words of truth and particularly truth about himself. If the view that we're discussing is true, if lost people long for the truth, they want more than anything else in life that someone with the truth would come to them and present that truth to them in some clear, warm, and gentle fashion. We would expect the people in this crowd to stand open-mouthed in wonder, teetering on the brink of saving faith. But instead, John tells us that they stoop down to pick up stones. And in their hostility, there was nothing they more desired than to hurl those stones at the head of Jesus. In the sixth chapter of John, there's a similar story, but this one involves a crowd of people identified as disciples. They had followed Jesus to this point in his ministry. Jesus, of course, knew their hearts. And we're told that on this occasion, Jesus began to speak to them of the necessity of his death and the necessity of their incorporating his death into their faith, understanding that it would be a sacrifice offered for their sins. And again, if the common view of human nature is correct, we would expect to read of their tears of regret and their loud shouts of joy as their redemption drew nigh. But instead, we learn that nearly in mass, they turned indignantly on their heels and walked away and followed Jesus no longer. If the common view of human nature is right, we would expect to find something very different than what we do find in the records of Jesus' death. We would find, expect to find him dying on a cross on that ugly skull-shaped hill, surrounded by a large crowd of sympathetic friends. People standing in shocked silence, tears burning down their cheeks as they recognized on the one hand the necessity of that death and felt terrible because it was their guilt that required it much like a congregation of believers gathering to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Instead, we read that his friends at the cross were a tiny and a silent minority, and that the majority of the crowd was made up of those who despised him, taunting him as he's died with their words and their gestures. Earlier, many of them had chanted, crucify him, crucify him, and now they rejoiced at his suffering and his pending death. How do we explain this behavior on the part of non-believers if their hearts are really longing for the truth and the mercy of Almighty God? And again, if these views are true, we would expect large numbers of humble, quiet people to be counted among the disciples of Jesus when his life was over. 
And yet in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul refers to the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, his appearances here and there in that time between his resurrection and his return to heaven, Paul says after that, Jesus was seen by over 300 brethren at one time. Now, Jesus was the ideal church planter. He was handicapped by no sin. Not only was there no sin in his life, there was no sin in his heart or his mind or his character. He was perfectly wise in his understanding, pure in all his ways. And to those who had eyes to see, this was manifest to them. And he was also a man who understood the needs of men and women and young people and dressed those needs as he saw them in their order of importance in his ministry. If anywhere in history success was to be expected from such a work, it was in the life and as a result of the labors of Christ himself. And yet when he took leave of the earth, his followers were only a few hundred in number. Crowds numbering in the thousands came to hear him and to benefit from his touch. Yet the largest number that could be mustered in the heady days of his triumph over the grave was barely 500. Was Jesus' life a success? If we use the standard used by much of the church in our time, it seems that we have to say, no, it was not. He was unpopular with the great mass of people. He deliberately did and said things to offend and anger them. And when his work was over, barely a handful believed his word and committed their lives to him. But at this point, we have to ask, was Jesus' life largely a failure, or are the standards of measurement that we use faulty? I'd like to close by reminding you of the words of my text, because those words have two parts. John said that Jesus was in the world, and the world was made by him, but the world didn't know him. He says he came unto his own people, and even they did not receive him. But the second part is, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. The failure of Jesus to reach the great mass of men, whether Jewish or Gentile, is a part of the historian's testimony. But the success of Jesus in reaching those for whom his coming was intended is the second part of this declaration. And in that regard, Jesus considered his own work successful. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, we find these words of Jesus. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means reject. He prayed on the last night of his life to his father, those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And from the cross of all of this, Jesus said, it is finished. When Christ ascended and returned to the heavens from which he had come, the number of true believers following him was exactly as God intended. No more, no less, not one was missing. When Christ returns, every line in the book of life will be filled. There will be no erasures. There will be no extra names written in the margins. The success of the church is not measured by numbers, but by faithfulness.
this church and every other is not called to grow, not called to shrink, but called simply to be the church. To be a congregation of believers gathered in the presence of God, conscious of the gifts and the needs of those around them, his word open in their midst, their hearts and minds uplifted in worship, teaching, encouraging, admonishing one another. This is the biblical mandate for the identity and for the work of the church of Jesus Christ. To the extent that we are failing in any of these things, then no matter how loud our singing, how neat our appearance, how great our numbers, we are in the eyes of God failing in our mission. To the extent that we are doing these things, then in the judgment of God, the church is successful indeed. Let us pray together. Our Father, we remember that your Son came into the world to redeem men and women and young people and draw them in saving faith to himself. But he also came to draw those redeemed to one another in the life and the fellowship and the work of his church. We thank you that we number ourselves among those redeemed by his blood and called by his spirit. And we pray for ourselves, our God, together as a body, as a church, that we might be found pleasing you. That the life, the worship, the fellowship, the teaching, the encouragement of this church will all match your expectations, that your blessings might rest upon us and within us. We pray in Jesus' name.